Welcome to the DCCC Youth Podcast. This podcast is a sermon given by Greg called Joy and Suffering from the sermon series Light and Momentary, a study of suffering. We ask that during this time you would open our eyes to see more of you. We ask that you would change our hearts, change our minds, conform them to be more like yours. God, that's that's all we can ask, especially about this issue, that you would you would change us, that we would not leave this place unchanged, that you would change us inside and out, help us to see your way of seeing things, an eternal perspective, and not just the things that are going on around us. Um, help us to see our lives through your eyes. And we thank you, as always, for your sacrifice that enables us to know you and um, to become your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on suffering again called Light and Momentary. And today, the sermon, uh, as Thompson mentioned, is on joy and suffering. Um, and we've been in this for a couple weeks now. And we're, last week we dealt, or a couple weeks ago, we dealt um, with the, the big questions about suffering. Uh, we talked about um, why is there suffering at all? And then why do good things happen, or bad things happen to good people? And we talked a little bit about that, about suffering is here because of the curse, um, because of sin. It's both the symptom and the sickness that we have. It shows us that something is wrong with the world. And then the, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the answer from the Bible is that there are no good people. We can do good things, but ultimately we are not good people. So, so the, the real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Why does God choose to show us any mercy at all? Why does he choose to give us good things when we are ultimately separated from him and enemies from him unless we are his children? So uh, I want to talk uh, or go with you, go through the verse that we have for this series and encourage you to continue, if you have been, to memorize this. Um, and we'll be talking about this passage in a couple weeks. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I just want uh, a little note here to talk about what this actually means. Um, jars of clay are not pretty. <laughs> they don't look good. Um, and what it's saying is we have this treasure, God, inside of us. Though we're not pretty, we don't look good on the outside. We have glory on the inside. All-surpassing power to show that um, this power that is in us is not from us. We're just ugly and broken on the outside, but we have God within us. That's what it's talking about here. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. So again, just to review, this is the kind of our theme verses for this, light and momentary. How do we see our lives? Well, we're going to talk about this today. How can Christians, how can we, if we are Christians, have joy in suffering when bad things happen in this life that so many things go wrong? How can we truly have joy? Where do we find the source of that joy? Um, just a quick review before we go into the sermon, um, joy and suffering. Again, just to give us a background for this, this is what we talked about last time, but I wanted to give us kind of a timeline of suffering again to help us understand why is there even suffering. Uh, so it begins, God creates. Man sins. God curses. And we, we talked about that in the past. God had to curse us for what we did, uh, for what Adam and Eve did. 
And the curse, ultimately, we will see, is what causes suffering. Um, it used to be work was good, uh, but the curse said, now you're going to work, and it, you're, you're going to plow the land by the sweat of your brow. Uh, man suffers because of the curse. Jesus comes, but he doesn't sin. But Jesus still suffers and dies. So this is kind of a mystery, right? If the, if the curse and the suffering we have is due to sin, how come Jesus still had to suffer? Yeah? Um, the world is cursed. Man receives salvation, but still suffers. Why? The world is still under the curse. That's the reason. The curse has not been removed. Um, Jesus came. He did not remove the curse. And there are a thousand reasons we could talk about maybe why we still suffer. Why are we still sinful? Why aren't we made perfect the moment we receive God? Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with showing others the way. Um, showing them that, yes, I still suffer. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to be happy and successful and never suffer again. In fact, the Bible says oftentimes the opposite. You're going to have more suffering. You're going to be persecuted. Things are going to happen to you. And so we, with Jesus, redeem suffering and show the world and say, suffering doesn't have to be bad. The world is cursed, but you can still have joy. You can still have perspective and see what the point of this is. That's what we're talking about today. Um, for you outline note takers, um, this is going to be our quick outline that we have. But the question is, how can we have joy in suffering? What is the source of our joy in suffering? Um, we're going to talk about two main points, the present and the future. These are what the Bible points to as their sources of joy in suffering. But what about what in the present? Um, the conforming of our character to that of Jesus, and then therefore rewards in heaven, which we'll get to in just a moment. And then the future. The curse will be lifted and the earth will be remade. And again, I'll expand on these in just a minute. But I wanted to tell a quick story. There's a, a guy. He was uh, a Romanian pastor. Probably not a lot of you know him uh, or know of him. His name is Joseph Son. And during uh, communism back in the 80s and 70s, again, he was a pastor in Romania. And for what he did, he continued to preach. He was often punished, and lots of bad things happened to him. And he tells his stories a lot. He, he wrote a big, thick book dissertation called um, Martyrdom, Suffering, and Rewards in Heaven. Um, and he talks a lot about this. But he tells the story. Um, one day, he had kind of received, he'd gone through some suffering, and then he kind of received a blessing in some way from the local of, official who said, you know what? This is worth so much to you. You're willing to suffer for this. You can preach, and I won't, I won't mess with you. So things were good for a while, but then they got a new official, um, as often happens, and that guy really did not like him. And so one day he's just sitting at home with his wife, and a bunch of policemen come in, and they start questioning him and stuff, and he said, and then they say, we're going to confiscate your library. Um, now, this is a big deal. I am just a young pastor <laughs> you go downstairs and probably some of you would look and be like whoa you have a lot of books but <laughs> compared to a lot of pastors I really don't um, books are a pastor's lifeline um, for learning and, and help, hoping helping to understand more and so they come in and they say we're going to take all your books so obviously he has a really bad attitude and what he has to do is um, go through all the books and sign them all and say um, taken from my house on whatever the date was, you know, and write down the date and then sign his name. So he's doing this and doing this, and he's getting progressively madder because a lot of them were brought over by people from, you know, America, the West. You couldn't get them a lot of other places. And so he's watching all of his whole library go to waste, basically, go away. And then he opens up this one book. He looks at it, and the cover says, Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory. Is it yours now? <laughs> and so he looks at it and he says, it was not before, but it will be now. And so he decides to, to treat it as though this is going to be a joyful thing. And he used it as an opportunity, he said um, to his wife, why don't you make these men's of coffee? And they, they sat down and he was a good host to them after that. And did they still take his books? Yes. Was it still sad? Yes. Um, and bad things still happened to him but he made a choice he made a choice that he would be joyful despite what was going on why? 
So ultimately, they're just books. But those men, those men, C.S. Lewis said, those people you see on the street, um, they will last longer than all the epics, the poems, the nations of the world. They are eternal. These things are not. And he got some perspective. He said, I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to see with eternal eyes to see these people. And I'm going to use this. And, and I'm not saying this always happens, but God used him mightily. In the next couple of weeks, many, many people were saved and baptized in his church, despite the fact that he had <coughs> just a couple days to prepare sermons, no materials to help him, any of those things. And I just wanted to tell you this story. I think it illustrates what we're talking about very well. Um, so as we think about this, the big idea, that you, what you want to come away from with this, this is what you want to come away with. We can have joy in suffering because of the hope of our salvation. Um, hopefully, I know it's a little faint. You can see I've highlighted um, three of those words, the, the big words here. Joy in suffering because of the hope of our salvation. Joy, suffering, hope. Um, as we think about this, I want to talk a little bit about biblical definitions. So I have um, definitions for you. I looked these up in Merriam-Webster online so I could give you the definitions of these. But um, I want to, to kind of hopefully change your mind about how you think about this. I think, um, and for good reason, the way we tend to think about words is that we come to it with our understanding of words. So let's say we read 1 Corinthians 13, um, the love chapter. And so it says um, there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love at the end. And we have an, a, co- a collected experience, an idea in our mind of what love is based on the culture we live in, the family we live in, all those different things. And it's very easy for us to come to a chapter like that and say, oh, the greatest is love. Well, love hasn't been very good in my experience. Or culturally, love for us is, you know, love is the feeling you get when he gives you a box of chocolates. Or, you know, we usually describe it as the feeling, primarily a feeling. And that's how we think of it. But I'm saying when we look at these words, we think of that word, Let's let the Bible inform us what that word means when we read it in the Bible. So instead of saying, looking at it and saying, love is a feeling, what do we learn from 1 Corinthians 13? Love is primarily an action. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And so as we're studying the Bible and we think about these things, let's let the Bible inform us of what these things are. So giving a little introduction, um, let's see what it says. Joy. The dictionary says, Joy is the emotion invoked by well-being, success, or good fortune by the prospect of possessing what one desires. One of those great dictionary-sounding definitions. Um, And these biblical definitions, I think, are a work in progress. I'm not saying this is like all that the Bible says about it, but I want to give you just an idea. When we say joy as Christians, if we are Christians, what does that mean? Is it... it, uh, the emotion evoked by wells being or success or, you know, like, is it something that happens when something good happens to you? Now, uh, from the Bible, we learn about joy. This is an important word. The sermon is joy and suffering. So what is joy? It's a settled feeling of peace and often happiness that comes from our salvation and eternal perspective. So joy is not something that, you know, we feel this upsurge of happiness because we think we're going to get something. Uh, we learn from the Bible when it uses the word joy like, you have joy. As a Christian, you have joy. It should be the foundation of who you are and what you do. Because you know that there is a greater purpose. You can see with eternal eyes, as I said before. Um, we have this, sometimes it is happiness that comes from our salvation. We look and we say, I am his child. And I have joy in that. I rejoice in that. Paul says that a lot in Philippians. Rejoice, again, I say rejoice. And Philippians is all written while he's in prison. And it's so much of it is about joy and rejoicing. How can he say that if it's just something that, you're, oh, I think I'm going to get this, so I'm going to be happy. No, it's a subtle feeling. It's the foundation of our Christian life. So uh, with that in mind, we'll hopefully give it a better idea. Next, suffering. This one is a funny one in the dictionary. Pain. <laughs> That's what it said. Pain. That was it. Um, we talked about this just a minute ago at the beginning. The symptom of our fallen nature. Pain, sickness, and brokenness. This shows us that there is something wrong with ourselves and the world. This is suffering. 
it is the result of the fall, the result of the curse. So what does this mean? And this, I think, is very important. Am I saying by suffering? Like, you know, all those Christians back in the Cultural Revolution in China or in uh, Myanmar or wherever now, the things that they go through, persecution, is that suffering? Yes. Is it suffering when someone looks down on you because they know that you are a Christian and they believe that you're superstitious? Yes. Is it suffering when your alarm goes off at the, in the morning and you do not want to get up and it is painful to even think about getting up? Yes. Okay? Now, I don't want to, by saying that, minimize the suffering of Christians in other countries because it is so important that we pray for them. But suffering, biblical suffering, is the result of the fall. It's the pain we feel. It's the heartache that we feel when someone betrays us. It breaks us breaks our heart. It's when someone looks down on us. It's, it's all those things. Suffering is the result of the fall, and we all suffer. So what are we going to do about it? This is about joy and suffering. I think it's easy for us to compartmentalize our mind and say, well, you know what? I'm not really suffering now, so I don't really need to listen to this. If you have anyone in your life that makes you feel miserable, which I'm sure most of you do, um, you are suffering. If you ever feel disappointed, you are suffering, according to the Bible. This is suffering. It is what happened when the fall happened. This is, it's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to be disappointed. We're not supposed to be broken. So we are all suffering. Why? We talked about that when I preached last time. It shows us that something is wrong with the world. It, 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 you know, we, this whole earthquake happened in Haiti, and everyone starts asking why. All these people who before didn't care about anyone, basically, just doing their own thing, going on with their lives, and then this happened, and they say, well, why did this have to happen? They're asking that question. Now, most of them, are they just going on with their lives again and not even worrying about it? Yeah. But they did ask. They asked, why? Why did this happen? They started to say, it shouldn't be this way. And it's true. It shouldn't. Um, and we need to understand that when these things happen, it should not be this way. Um, it's not supposed to be this way. And our hearts should ache for that. I think it's, it's right and proper for our hearts to ache that people all around the world are suffering. And hope. To desire with expectation of obtainment. So, hope is, uh, you want something and you expect that you're going to get it. I hope for this. Um, but you might not. Biblical hope. Clinging to the, the future ultimate fulfillment of what we already possess. Now, this is a really, I was writing this sentence um, this week while I was doing the sermon notes and stuff. I was like, wow, this is a complicated sentence. What I mean by this is that when we hope, um, let's say I, I hope I get a puppy for Christmas. If Christian says that, my son, Christian says I hope I get a puppy for Christmas, there's, Rachel knows there's a fairly good chance that's an ill-founded hope. <laughs> He's probably not going to get a puppy for Christmas. But he can want one really, really bad. And I think that's how we think about hope a lot. That's the, the um, understanding we come to the Bible of hope. Oh, so when we say we have this hope, oh yeah, we really, really want you to come back, Jesus. But you might not. No, no, no. Um, it is the ultimate fulfillment of what we already possess. We are already saved if we are Christians. But we are being saved. It, we are already justified sanctified we are holy but we are being sanctified we already know Jesus but we don't fully know Jesus um, and this is a famous saying that's been used a lot already not yet there's so many things in the Bible that are already not yet and so when we say hope we it's things that we already possess but we want their ultimate fulfillment we want we have this little piece of heaven in knowing Jesus on earth we want and we understand we will ultimately get more. We will know Jesus fully, as First Corinthians says. We will be completely sanctified and not sin. So when we say hope, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something that is certain, that we are just waiting for the fulfillment of. We have it, we're waiting to completely possess it. And that's what hope in the Bible means. So, back to the big idea. Taking a lot of time to explain what I mean here, but big idea when we think about this, we have joy in suffering because of the hope of salvation. Now hopefully we talked about those words, this gives you a kind of a better understanding and already you can say well I, uh, I see where Greg's going with this sermon already 
Um, really, it's about eternal perspective. Um, oh, sorry, we don't want to go there yet. Uh, so, what is our present hope? Point one. Uh, I said that our hope, um, the reason we have joy and suffering, is number one, in the present. What is our present hope? What is it that gives us joy in the present? Number one, and to maybe to some of you this will seem kind of lame, is to be more like Jesus. That is what can give us joy in suffering. What do I mean by this? Romans 8, 28 through 29, it says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who call according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So a lot of us know that first verse, where it says, uh, we know God works all things for good for those who love him that are called according to his purpose. We're like, great. That's so great. That means if I love God, God and I'm called according to his purpose, then everything's going to be good. And this is one of those things where we see it, we're like, I'm taking that promise. I'm claiming this promise. People say that a lot. Uh, I see this promise in the Bible, but they don't look at the next part. What is the good? What is the good that we're getting? Is it rich? Is it happy, successful? It says, um, to work for, together for good, those who love him, called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? That God works, if we love God, if we're called according to his purpose, he'll work good in us. And what is that good? To be made more like Jesus in all things. That is the good. And we talked about this before, um, a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about it. We, we see good as no more suffering. But God sees good as making us more like him. And a lot of times we're like my son Christian, where we tell him not to do something or do this, and he, he just doesn't understand why. He's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> we hear that a lot lately. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, because to him, it doesn't seem good. It doesn't seem like what he should or shouldn't do in this situation is good. Because he doesn't have the perspective. He doesn't have the eyes, the heart to see that what we're guiding him to do will ultimately be good for him. That's what this passage is talking about. So, we have joy in the present in our suffering because it is making us more like Jesus. And if we are true followers of Jesus, that is what gives us joy. It's not necessarily... It is good to have money. It's good to have happiness. It's good to have a successful life. But if you are ultimately not becoming more like Jesus... It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to be what's really important. Also, James 1.24. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's a crazy verse. I remember the first time I read that verse, I was, that I really understood it when I became a Christian in high school. It says, consider it joy when you, when you suffer all kinds of trials. So it's like, uh, okay, whatever. Um, why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And enduring, let endurance have its perfect result. What is that? So you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, same thing. We have joy in the present and our suffering because it is making us more like him. It is making us endure. It is making us more like Jesus. And that is good. Our scripture reading for today, Romans 3, uh, 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. The word that came up again, you know, this hope. It says, hope does not disappoint. The hope that we have, we already have. It will not disappoint us. We are waiting for its ultimate fulfillment. And again, we exalt in our tribulations because they're being about perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. We're becoming more like Jesus. So, that's kind of point, that's 1.5. Um, now, the second half of that is something that I'm kind of a little, it's a little weird talking about it um, sometimes in Protestant churches. It's a difficult topic, which is, uh, you know, I talked about that 
um, book, Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. It's a hard book to write um, for, for Protestants because the whole idea of rewards to us is a little weird. And that's why we even talk about, um, comes up a lot, the Protestant work ethic. The idea that, you know what, we love God and we serve Him even though we don't expect anything. We don't work to get our salvation. We work because we love Him. That's where that whole phrase, Protestant work ethic, comes from. That because that's how we view our salvation. We'll do that in life. We'll just work. And, we get, and some of us in America even kind of feel like if you work just for the reward, then you're a bad person. If you're only doing it to get the reward, that's bad. Um, well, what is our present hope? To become more like Jesus, and from that, to receive, by God's grace, rewards in heaven. Now, this is, again, this is a very sticky situation. Am I saying that you earn your salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Am I saying that the Bible says that we will receive rewards in heaven? Absolutely. Uh, and Paul even talks about striving for the crown of righteousness. Um, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, many times when suffering is mentioned in the Bible, a lot of times, uh, glory and reward are mentioned right along with it. For example, even talking about Jesus in Philippians 2, 8-11, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Um, again, this is something that uh, we think of Jesus in this way, that you know, he humbled himself and to be exalted. Even Jesus did this. Um, and it's, it's its own reward. Also, Romans 8.17. There's a lot in Romans 8 about this topic. And if we're children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Suffering and that glory... This isn't like glory, like fame, necessarily, that we think of it again. They go together. Uh, and I have a uh, great quote. You, I, I swear I've used this quote like 15 times in different lessons. Uh, C.S. Lewis and the, uh, write an essay called The Weight of Glory. This is a great quote about rewards and thinking about rewards and glory and this stuff. Hey, uh, Chris, could you give it a little quick? you advance there we go it says indeed if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels it would seem that our lord finds our desires not too strong too weak so we're all worried about like well if you if you want the reward then that's not really a good thing but he says, if you look at what the Gospels really says, what Jesus really says about rewards, God's not finding our desires too strong for them, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an angry child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday of the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This is where we find ourselves on this issue of rewards. Do we want them too bad? No. <laughs> we don't want them enough. We don't want joy enough. We want to mess around with this stuff. When infinite joy is offered to us, why do we do that? Why? Because we're not seeing with eternal eyes. We're looking at our lives and saying, I'm going to get all that I can here, and it doesn't matter that I'm going to lose it when I die. And we, we ignore heavenly rewards. We ignore our relationship with God. Um, when I think about this as well, there's some other... What does the Bible say about these rewards? Now, obviously, I'm not doing a sermon on <laughs> rewards in heaven, and so this makes it a little difficult because it's, it's a really hard and big topic to talk about. But in Matthew 5.12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, for your re- reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, you know, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. He doesn't say, rejoice and be glad because God will maybe give you a reward, but don't worry about that. <laughs> you know? He says, rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven will be great. He says, don't invest in things on the earth where moth and rust destroy, but invest in heaven where 
the rich, they don't fade. Riches in heaven don't fade. Hebrews 11.6. This is, uh, I love this one. Um, it's really great. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's what he says about it. Is that if you're going to come to God, you have to A, believe he exists. Okay, you got that one covered. And B, believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's what we have to do when we come to God. We have to believe that he will reward us. Um, again, I, I, part of me is crying out, no, Greg, shut up. <laughs> Stop talking about this. Because it is our tendency to, to claim onto these things, to jump on them and, and turn things into legalism where we say I'm going to do this because that's what God wants me to do and it's all about rules and it's all about getting stuff no um, part of this and part of the reason it's a sensitive topic for, for us is I think that we don't really understand what rewards in heaven are for us a reward here is so separated from what the action we did was for example if Christian goes on the potty he gets a gum drop now, there's not really any connection between those things except for a gumdrop is something that he wants, right? And so, really, in a lot of ways, it's not a really great reward because it's not really teaching him what we want to teach him. If you do something good, you get something good. Um, when, when we think about rewards in heaven, it's more like, uh, let's say that, use the example of Rachel and I, that I love Rachel so much and I chase after her, and I woo her, and I do everything I can to win her. And then we get married. Now, who of us would say, therefore, that man, why did he do that? Man, he's just like a a mercenary. He just wanted her, and that's why. No, I got the proper reward for what I did. And was I doing it just so she would marry me? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But is that wrong? No, we wouldn't say that's wrong. The actions and the reward were so linked that you, you couldn't separate them. And we see that, and we're not like, oh, that's, that's wrong. Um, because I wanted to win her love. And so I did the things that would win her love. It was the natural outcome of what I was doing. It's a natural reward. Um, and now, what does this mean in, <laughs> in cultivating love for God? Oh, I think of it kind of like this way. Um, now, I've actually never been to the Grand Canyon but let's say we take a family trip to the Grand Canyon. Maybe Christian and Abby are a little older, and I don't know. Um, and we decide to take um, one of the teens with us too, just because. <laughs> and we go and we look out, and I look out and I see the Grand Canyon, and I'm touched so deeply by its beauty. And maybe uh, one of the teens looks and they're like, "Oh, that's that's pretty great." <laughs> um, and then Christian's like whoa, it's big, because that's totally what he would say. A big hole. Um, Now, when we're looking out at this, I have, throughout my life, hopefully, cultivated an appreciation for beauty and understanding that it touches me. I have a greater experience in life to look out and understand what beauty is. Now, some of you teens, it's depending on who you are, too, even as a person. Maybe you'll just be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Because you just haven't had necessarily the same experience and the, the breadth of understanding how beautiful it truly is. And Christian, you just got nothing. <laughs> you know, like, you can understand that it's a big hole and that it's cool. But he doesn't really truly understand. And now, you're like, where in the world is Greg going with this? I think that um, rewards in heaven and understanding rewards in heaven and even heaven itself is like this. That if you go through life and you're just fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition. You're a Christian. You don't really care. What kind of a reward is heaven? You didn't want it in the first place. Maybe you're like, oh, I just didn't want to go to hell. Um, okay? You still, you still go to heaven, but you're not going to have an appreciation of the presence of God. However, if you spent your entire life devoted and consumed with pleasing God and loving God and searching for Him and seeking Him, and you receive that, it is so much deeper. So, do I, in a way, I guess I'm saying that heaven could definitely be a different experience for different people, and I think that's what rewards in heaven are. 
some of the parables that Jesus told kind of talk about it as if um, he talks about cities that people would be entrusted with cities so it's the idea that you have served God in life you have cultivated a desire to serve him so in heaven you will be put in charge of things of having a chance to serve him more perfectly there and again you know it's not a perfect illustration and ultimately do I think I can tell you exactly what heaven's like no (laughs) obviously not but this is I think how we need to understand rewards in heaven that it is the natural outcome of what we have done in life we have cultivated desire to love God to want to be with him to want to please him and we get to heaven and we can do that and we are with him and we understand him and he is revealed to us that is his own reward that is the reward right there and he says here you take charge of this city for me serve me in this what joy does that bring amazing joy and that's what I think we're talking about here so um, long time to get through that but uh, we have joy in the present joy in our suffering why? because we're becoming more like Jesus and in doing so when we become more like Jesus we are earning those rewards in heaven when we are suffering and we are drawn closer to him we want to serve him more we do that for him we're persecuted for him like he was we cultivate that that deeper joy joy is the joy and suffering thing they're not separated by becoming more like Jesus in our suffering it is joy that's, that's the reward it's not like so you become more like Jesus and you get joy becoming more like Jesus is the joy that you get in suffering um, in the present so number two the future when we talk about the future there's two major ideas that are hard to separate number one is the removal of the curse and number two is the remaking of the earth I listed this before number one solves our ultimate problem with suffering what is suffering? it's the curse why do these bad things happen? why do you not want to wake up in the morning? (laughs) the curse Um, and it's going to be removed and the earth will be remade this is it's like bam bam it's really like I said it's hard to separate these I want to read a pretty big section here in Romans 8 16 through 25 if you have your Bibles Romans 8 16 through 25 the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory I already read that part before I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us why? that other passage in Corinthians tells us because they're light and momentary compared to the glory they're nothing they're short and they're not really that bad compared to the glory that comes after they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time not only so but we ourselves we have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what he already has but if we hope for what we do not have we wait for it patiently the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express so when we look at this when we think about this it says we all of creation is groaning waiting for this curse to be removed we're waiting and waiting and us too and this is, this is the suffering that we're waiting and waiting for this curse to be removed we want to be adopted as full sons it's like these children that know they've been adopted but they haven't been picked up yet um, you know whether it's in, in Gambia or, or someplace in Africa the situation's bad they know that they have been adopted they have been the parents have gone through the, all the paperwork they've done all that stuff but they're just not there yet how does that child feel? seriously think about it that way how does that child feel? now how do you feel about your adoption? do you feel that way? do you hope for that thing that has already happened but not yet happened? are you 
feeling that way, how would you feel if you were that child living in poverty and dirt and <laughs> not really having anyone that could truly care about you? You know that someone's coming to do that. But they haven't gotten there yet. How would you feel inside? That is who we are as God's children. We are waiting. It says we are groaning inwardly. Our hearts cannot take it waiting for our adoption as sons. And not only that, but the entire world is groaning waiting for the adoption as sons. There's a couple other places we find this as well. We don't have time to go there because they've taken a little longer than I should. Um, if you want to write them down, though, you can look up a couple more verses. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 through 9, talks about this. 1 Peter 1, 3-9. through 9. 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 4.17, which is, you know, kind of part of our theme verses and 1 Peter 4.13 if you want to maybe come up and check my notes later you can do that as well Um, in conclusion again going back to we can have joy in suffering because of the hope of our salvation I hope I hope (laughs) my goal for you to come away with is that now when you say that we can have joy in suffering the hope of our salvation you have a much greater understanding of what that means. Because, you know, I came to you with that big idea. You're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I, I earnestly, earnestly hope that you can now hear this sentence and understand so much more deeply what it means, um, what joy truly is. What are we looking for? What brings us joy? What are we searching for in this life? Some thoughts on joy. Um, heaven is consistently put forth as a, a source of joy and suffering uh, in the Bible. And we went through some of those passages This does not mean, however, that we can't have joy if we're not suffering. Now, obviously, after going through the sermon, you understand why that is. Because is suffering just this separate thing that happens when you're persecuted for your faith or whatever? No, no. We're always suffering. Um, And, of course, that doesn't mean we can't have joy because joy is the foundation of who we are. It's the expectation. It's It's our being as children of God is joy. Our joy comes from the understanding that uh, we have of the world when we become slaves of Jesus. So joy isn't something that's just, whoop, God gives it to you, here's, here's joy, I am bequeathing joy on you. No, it is what immediately comes into our hearts when we become slaves of righteousness, slaves to Jesus. It changes how we look at the world. I, want you, I encourage you guys to read Philippians now. Read the book of Philippians with this understanding and see how Paul, Paul's entire view of the world is changed just by who he is in Christ. Well, how he talks about joy and rejoicing. Um, to the world, it's, it's crazy. You, know, you can't really understand it. Um, our perspective should always be heaven-focused. It's what gives us the ability to rejoice in any situation. Now, I gave a, a, a sermon in the joint service a number of months ago that really talked about this as well from, um, from Peter. I, we talked about it. That, like, what, what are the decisions we're making? How are we viewing our lives? And I would say to you, when your alarm goes off in the morning, when you go to work and you don't want to be there, when you have a fight with your husband or wife or friend or whatever, those are all spiritual decisions you have to make. Every decision you make is a spiritual decision, whether it's drinking a glass of orange juice or deciding what job you're going to take. Because you're always trying to keep heaven in view. You're viewing your life through those eternal eyes, making it a spiritual decision. So you say, when I drink this glass of orange juice, I will understand that it comes to me only because God has given me the grace and the means to receive it. And so I thank him. This is why we pray before meals, not just out of habit, because we want to turn our hearts, we want to recognize why we even have that food. That's being heaven-focused. That's having eternal eyes. When you're deciding what job to take, is it like, okay, God, um, if you want me to take the job, make the third car that drives past be a red car. <laughs> you know, it sounds crazy, but a lot of us think this way. We, we try and make it like this magic thing. Um, Instead of saying, you know what? God has given me the means. He's revealed his word. He's given me understanding of it. And I want to make a decision that pleases him. That is the will of God. Uh, And I I so want to do a sermon series on the will of God. What is it? Is it magical? No, not really. 
He's given us the means to understand Him. Let's make decisions that please Him. That's living our lives in joy and eternal perspective. Um, so, practically, um, as we think about this, how can we comfort ourselves and other Christians? Second uh, Corinthians 1 talks about this. It says, God is the God of all comfort, comfort, comfort. Just comfort is like 12 times in the first chapter of that book. Um, how can we comfort people who are going through these trials? Well, number one, when I say these things, I'm not saying, okay, somebody's going through a really hard time, so you go up to them and you say, oh, April, <laughs> just know this and this and this, because it's not really going to help her. You know, it's, you struggle through things. But these are things that are important that we need to understand in the background. And I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We can't just wait until we suffer to figure out how to suffer correctly. <laughs> like, that's a bad plan. Um, we need to figure out how we're going to handle suffering. We need to cultivate joy in our lives beforehand so when it comes, and we know it will come, we are already there. God is there with us. And we don't have to say, God, what do I do? We can say, God, give me the strength to know, or to do what I know I should do. Um, so, number one, you will become more like Jesus. Uh, again, I don't suggest necessarily if someone is going through a really hard time. But like, it's okay. You'll become more like Jesus. Probably not a bad idea. Not a good idea. Um, the trial will end. First Corinthians ten thirteen says trials will end. They will. Um, understand joy is a responsibility. Choose joy. That's First uh, Thessalonians five sixteen. Rejoice always. Um, always giving thanksgiving. Suffering keeps us humble. Second Corinthians. 10, um, Paul's thorn in the flesh talks about. And comfort others and point them to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. That's the thing that I talked about before. It says, the God of all comfort gives you comfort so you can comfort others in their afflictions. Um, there's a lot of comfort in that passage. So th- these are the things, the foundations that we build, the building blocks we live our lives on so we can understand um, how to truly suffer. Well, now you're going to be like, man, Greg, you're already going over. I think there's something really important to say. How can we comfort unbelievers? Um, and this is so important, and it's the question that immediately came to my heart. Well, yeah, I can, I can give believers, uh, Christians, these Bible verses. How can I comfort an unbeliever? And as Christians, um, the hard part is that apart from the gospel, you really can't. And if you're being honest, you can't say. You, you might be able to say, okay, you know what? Uh, my unbeliever friend, <laughs> this will pass. And that's true. It will pass. But the bad thing that's going on, eventually it will go away. But their suffering will not. In fact, unless they open their eyes, it will only get worse. And this is, this is what brings it back to the most important thing, what is always the most important thing. And I, I know you all know it because I say it every time. Jesus is the point of history. Sacrifice on the cross is the turning point in history, the peak. Everything revolves around him, and everything was created by in him, and in him has its being. Okay, so when you're trying to comfort a friend who doesn't believe in God or whatever, <laughs> you really can't do it without saying, you know what? The answer is Jesus, and that sounds to us, <laughs> in depending on how you say it, it could be really trite and really dumb sounding. The answer is Jesus. Yeah, it is dumb if you say it that way, but you say, you know what? Life is hard. And I have found a way to have joy always. And it's not just a happy paint a smile on your face. Because it is hard. Life is hard. And sometimes I hate life. <laughs> I hate the curse. Okay? But there is joy. And, and that's the comfort you got to offer them. You can't just take that away and say, okay, I'm going to tell you all this good stuff. Um, that, that I have that I can draw joy from you can't hopefully as a Christian you can't remove Jesus from your life and then and have it be okay it shouldn't make sense without Jesus um, so that brings us to the end final point same as it always is Jesus is the center he is the solution to suffering he is our reason for living our hope our joy so the question is um we talked about love a little earlier, right? I mentioned First Corinthians. And my question for you, how are you loving God? How are you loving others? Are you sharing your life with Jesus? 
Are you sharing Jesus with others? Because that's what love is. <laughs> love is those actions toward God and toward others. In light of Jesus and all His glory, all those things that happen, all of our suffering is really as nothing. That's this light and momentary thing we're talking about. So when I think about it, and we think it goes great right after this quote, that we have infinite joy offered to us. And our series is called Light and Momentary. What is light and momentary? All this junk. It's really nothing. And so when we compare to the glory, to the cross, to Jesus, it is nothing. It is as nothing because that glory is so great. And so this is one of those things we talk a lot about, you know, laying down our burdens at the cross. <laughs> I am saying, lay down your suffering at the cross. Put it at the feet of Jesus. And uh, it's kind of a cheesy illustration, but this, all that stuff we just talked about, all that suffering, when compared to the cross, is as nothing. It is really, it's light and momentary. It is short when you compare it to the glory of God, that Jesus is the center, that everything that happened, he suffered to redeem suffering so that we could have joy in suffering. And I just pray that we can have eternal eyes. Um, it's, it's the key. I pray that we have eternal eyes and we love Jesus. So, in light of that, let's pray. Let's pray for those things and ask God for those things. God, we thank you for who you are. You are so great. No one is greater than you. And open our eyes. Open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory, to see eternity, and live our lives in light of it. Put in us a desire, a burning desire, a passion to know Jesus, to be more like Jesus, to get our reward, which is knowing you more, serving you more, understanding you more. Let our hearts beat with yours. Let us chase after you, following your paths. Why? Because they are the way. We know by doing that, we will be fulfilled. We will have joy. We will get those things. And that's not bad. Lord, just remove our guilt. So many of us live our lives weighed down by guilt for the things that we've done or haven't done. God, remove that. If it's standing in the way from following you, from having a passion for you, because we know how much it costs on the cross for you to make us holy, to make us your children. So God, just let us drop those things that we're like. We say to you sometimes, God, I can't serve you because I did this. I can't love you right because I did this, because I'm a bad person. Lord, we know we are bad people. We ask that you would give us your grace. Thank you for your grace. Give us joy. Give us you, because you are all we want. It's in your name we pray. Amen.